Good morning. Can, can you hear me okay? I have trouble with this sometimes. What do you call the place that every single person all the time loves the Lord with all their soul, all their heart, and all their mind? Heaven. Huh? And it's good when God's people can make this earth a little more like heaven, isn't it? <clears throat> We're not there yet. <clears throat> Things are a little different in this world. In, a, in Ephesians 6.11, the Bible tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. It's clear when you go through Scripture that there is a battle going on here. But this battle is far more lethal than any earthly battle. I want to talk about strategy and tactics today, especially tactics, Christian tactics. Strategy is usually the general plan for a battle. Like on D-Day, the general plan was to invade the Normandy coast in France. Tactics has to do with what each regiment would do individually to execute that plan. You can think of strategy and tactics with Monopoly, too. The strategy of Monopoly is to bankrupt all the other players, right? And your tactics are to... Uh, buy complete color groups and add houses and even hotels. <clears throat> Strategy of God to reach the world with, is, is to uh, send his people out with the gospel. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And part of God's strategy, as I said, is to employ each one of us as a witness. Tactics, tactics would involve what I would do to help execute that. If I want to help people come to know the Lord, I need to understand how to lead them to the Lord using the Scriptures. I would also want to be prepared to deal with objections. So there's some tactics that we need to deal with. <clears throat> and if I'm prepared to do these things, then I can be of use to God in helping others. In recent history, though, the, the tide has really turned a lot, and winning a hearing for the gospel is not as easy as it used to be. In a war, sometimes an army will use something called a smoke screen. A smoke screen is designed to hinder the enemy, to obscure your movements. The uh, second definition for smoke screen is something designed to obscure, confuse, or mislead. And when something is used to obscure truth, confuse understanding, or intentionally mislead people, that's especially dangerous. <clears throat> Smoke screens have been especially effective against the church at large recently. They have caused many believers to become tongue-tied or even silent. I have a list of these smoke screens, and you're probably familiar with most of them, but you may not have thought of them as smoke screens. But as I go through this list, which is not necessarily a comprehensive list, but it's the main ones, and it's mostly what I've experienced as well, you'll no doubt, no doubt quickly pick up on how these things are used to confuse, obscure, or mislead people. So here are the uh, here are eight of those. Number one, there is no right and wrong. 
Everything is relative. You have your beliefs, I have mine. What's good for me may not be good for you and vice versa. Number two, it's not rational to believe in God. There's no proof. Number three, evolution is scientific and creation is a fable. Number four, Christianity is basically the same as all other religions. The main similarity is love. You shouldn't tell others how to live or to believe. Number five, you can't take the Bible too seriously because it was only written by men, and men make mistakes. Number six, it's wrong to force your views on other people. You can't legislate morality. Christians involved in politics violates the separation between church and state. Number seven, abortion is not murder. The fetus is not a person, and a woman must have her rights. Number eight, homosexuals were born that way. They have no choice. Your Bible cannot be right. But those people should have their rights. Who are you to say that heterosexual marriage is the only way? That's wrong. Have you had much success in dealing with these? The church at large really hasn't. I, I've, I've had real struggles with conversations like this. Think about this for a moment. Can you imagine, there are a lot of people in the country who are conservative, but are not necessarily religious, right? Now you imagine these people listening to things like this. They don't have any way to refute it. And in fact, if you think about it, a lot of them have come to agree with it because it sounds right. It's not right, but it sounds right to them. And that's having an effect on our country and our world, isn't it? It affects what happens with laws that get made and elections that take place. So some of you, uh, probably most of you know who Lee Strobel is. He was once an atheist. Um, his wife got saved. He was very affected by that. And uh, he investigated the claims of Christ and became a Christian and even wrote a book, The Case for Christ. Lee has a, a degree in journalism. He's an investigative journalist, and he has uh, studied law as well. So he's qualified to look into something like that, isn't he? So there was, this, there was a book on Christian tactics, and he was asked to write the foreword, and I want to read to you what he said. We live in a day when militant atheism is on the march. Christianity is coming under attack, not just from best-selling books, skeptical college professors, and television documentaries, but increasingly from neighbors and coworkers. It has become a faux pas to claim that only one faith leads to God, that the New Testament is reliable, or that any tenet of neo-Darwinism might be open to question. Each day, the chances are increasing that you'll find yourself in a conversation with someone who dismisses Christianity as a mythology-written anachronism. What will you do when they paint you into a rhetorical corner and belittle your beliefs? How will you persuasively present the reason for the hope that you have? How will you seize opportunities to get into potentially life-changing spiritual discussions? with people you meet. And he's right, I've experienced this. 
You try to talk to pe- some people about Jesus, and they say, oh, you're one of those uh, bigoted, intolerant religious fanatics who believes that book that's not relevant anymore. You want to keep people from having their rights. What's wrong with you? They've even gotten to the point of calling us dangerous. So you see, these smoke screens are very effective, aren't they? And the church's response has been much like shooting a BB gun at a tank. And the tank has literally run us over. Laws have been changed. Believers have been sued. And generally speaking, the church has been made to look like fools. And if they can discredit us, you can see how difficult it becomes to make any headway with the gospel. Now, God has not stopped, you understand. God's going to complete his, his, his goal of saving people. But there's, there's, work, there's work for us to do, for sure. What can we do? Well, for the last few years, one of my prayers and pursuits is to, to try to be more effective for God when talking with people. Learn how to share the gospel in a clear fashion. But there's a lot of other things going on that I'm, I find myself having to deal with. And I don't want to be knocked out by that. I want to be able to help people no matter what it is they think. So I go out and try to sow seeds in water, but there's an awful lot of weeds out there right now, and some of them have some pretty deep roots. I really desire to help people, though, and I've spent a lot of time researching this, trying to find how to deal with this, and I want to show you something that I've run across But I think first and foremost, I'd like us to be encouraged by a couple examples of how Jesus dealt with this. So if you could, we can uh, turn to John chapter 8, or you can uh, look at the verses up on the board as the brothers put them there. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6. This is a story you're very familiar with. The woman caught in adultery. Starting in verse 3, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds to accuse him. What did the Pharisees know about Jesus? They watched him. They knew he was merciful. They thought if they brought this woman to him, he's going to somehow let her off and break the law of Moses. And then they would have him. And imagine the presumption and the confidence of these men as they came. They taunted him. What then do you say? They really thought they had him. This is it. It's all over for Jesus. They're finally going to get rid of him. But the situation is not as it seems. Jesus uses their own plan and turns the tables on them. And it makes sense. You know why? Because basically, you had a bunch of thieves catch another thief in the act and drag him before the judge and say, condemn this person. It's just fundamentally wrong. So it all completely falls apart with them. 
for them when, when Jesus says in verse 7, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Can you imagine the look on their faces? He just, just poured cold water all over their plans. Let's also look at uh, Matthew 22. Starting in uh, verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. They're really buttering them up, aren't they? Just makes you want to throw up. <laughs> Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. Show me the money. So they brought him a denarius and said to him, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, you know it well, don't you? Render therefore to Caesar, Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They totally did not expect that. Again, Jesus uses their own devices and turns the tables on them, doesn't he? These quotes have been well known and quoted even by non-Christians for all time. And they're powerful. The problem with the people who did this to Jesus is that their devices were catastrophically weak and they didn't know it. They came with a motive to discredit him and they failed. We've been discredited, the church at large, by the smoke screens of this world, but we should not have. If the Bible's right, then we should have a response that exposes the lies being touted, but the most of the time we don't, do we? I've had a few hard times where I wasn't sure what to say. You know God is real. You know the Bible is true. We have the best foundation to defend the truth. I believe we can do what Jesus did. going to have to be prepared, though, because what happens is when we get confronted right now, we get shaky when we're challenged, and we don't, we don't keep our eyes on the Lord, and we don't know what to say, and sometimes we even compromise. Case in point, you think back in history, when Darwin came out with his theory of evolution, it really stopped some theologians in their tracks, because they had been interpreting Genesis as literal, and now there's this thing called science, and what if it's right? A new interpretation of Genesis came out that had not existed before. Instead of responding to evolution like they could have, they came up with this new interpretation that said God used evolution in creation. Not everyone bought into it, and even though the church 
knew the truth, it was pretty ineffective at dealing with this new God called science. But even the world didn't see what was coming next. Like a snowball rolling downhill, where it gathers more snow and gets larger and larger, evolution got bigger and bigger until today, the theory of evolution is touted as a fact. I read it in my own college textbooks. I got saved while I was in college, and it just jumped out at me when I read how they word the information they put in there about evolution. So people look at evolution as a fact, and they, and they make Christians look silly because they believe in creation. Well, I think it's time that snowball was melted. The church turned the world upside down once. It could do it again. But it's going to require effort on our part. And in Matthew 10, 16... Jesus said, Behold, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. And that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And I just want to stop for a moment on that verse because I can't help but mention something here. Too many times, and I've been guilty of this, we're either shrewd as a serpent or innocent as a dove, and we're not both. And Jesus is telling us to be both. There's a whole other message in this. But I want to remind people that when we're out in the world and the world is so vehemently, vehemently against us right now, you have to remember that those are people Jesus died for. He loves them. And it's our, effort, it's our purpose to reach them, not fight with them. So what I want to do now is to look at how we can respond to some of these assertions that have become facts for many, but they're really only smoke. You will find that they crumble when you deal with them properly, and we should have known this. We've wasted a lot of time and allowed secular beliefs to really establish a beachhead in America and in the world for that matter. <clears throat> so since my time is limited, <laughs> Um, I can, I'm only going to touch on a, a one or two um, of these issues. And the first one I want to deal with is the pro-life versus pro-choice issue. And I want to share with you a story of a brother who's been very effective at dealing with this. One thing you'll want to notice is when the beliefs of the pro-choice people are turned on them, you're going to see how weak their arguments really are you might be surprised how simple they really are. And if you're not familiar with the secular arguments, you're going to hear them in the story. And they don't have science backing them, no matter what you hear. So, before you can say, should a woman have a right to do this or not, you've got to ask yourself, what is the unborn? If the unborn is not human, then abortion is not a problem. End of story. But if the unborn is human, then it's murder, period. <clears throat> so this brother's name is Scott, and he shares a story of uh, he was flying from L.A. to another place, and uh, it was him and, and two pro-choice guys that got into a conversation together. And on this particular flight, this guy, I'm going to read now what he says, said to me, 
what do you do for a living? Common thing we do on planes, right? I, he says, well, I do lectures in bioethics. He said, what's bioethics? I said, well, I do lectures on things like embryo stem cell research, doctor-assisted suicide, and abortion. He said, really? He said, I agree with you. He says to me, I agree with you. Every woman should have a right to choose. I said, well, actually, that's not my view. He said, why not? I said, well, it just isn't. I don't hold to that view. He said, uh-oh. I know what you're going to tell me. He said, you're a Catholic, and your pope says abortion is wrong. Therefore, you believe that you can impose your view on me, right? I said, no, I, I'm not Catholic. Although the pope has written very eloquently on abortion, the gospel of life is a beautiful, eloquent defense of the pro-life view. But no, that isn't my position, and that's not what I was going to argue. He said, well, then what are you going to tell me? I said, I was going to tell you that I'm pro-life because I believe the pro-life position is true. He looked at me like I'd stepped off Mars. He said, true? Really? Yeah. T-R-U-E, true. He said, you really believe that it's true? I said, yeah, I do, because there's good evidence for it. Now, I didn't know this, but the guy in front of us had been eavesdropping on the conversation, and he turned around at that point, spread open the chair, and stuck his nose through and said, you know, I was listening to what you just said. I said, welcome to the conversation. Glad to have you. He said, I couldn't help overhearing what you just said, that you thought there was good reason to believe the pro-life position was true. I was wondering, do you have evidence for that, or is it just an opinion? I happen to think that's a really good question to be asking. Huh? I said, I'd sure be happy to defend that view. First of all, though, may I ask you a question? I said, do you believe newborns are human beings? The guy said, I believe once it's born, it's human. I said, fair enough. Would you then be willing to look with me at the four differences between a fetus that you say is not human and a newborn that you say is? And let's examine those four differences to see if any of them are relevant in such a way that we can say it's okay to kill the fetus, but not okay to kill the newborn. And he said, you know what? That sounds kind of cool. Okay. I said, there are only four differences between the two. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. You could use the acronym SLED for that, S-L-E-D. And I'm going to say that none of these are relevant. Let's take a look at them. First is size. Would you agree with me that the fetus is smaller than a newborn? Well, he jumped all over that. He said, oh, absolutely. How can you call something the size of a dot a human being? So I asked, are large people more human than small people? Men are generally larger than women. Does that mean men get more rights than women? Ooh, that's a bad one. Huh? <laughs> Does size equal value? He was silent, so we went to the next category. L, level of development. Would you agree that a fetus or embryo is less developed than a newborn? 
He said, absolutely. How can you call something that doesn't even have a functioning brain yet and is not even self-aware a human being? I said, if self-awareness and intelligence define us as human beings, that means those that are more intelligent should have the right to exploit those of us whose GPA was not so high in high school. It would also mean that we're on a gigantic bell curve. We start off with very little rights of personhood and very little self-consciousness, and we gradually gain personhood as we reach our intellectual and physical peaks. And then we gradually lose rights of personhood as we age. Is that your view? He said, no, that's an elitist view. I said, well, then why are you imposing it on the fetus? I said, a four-year-old girl is less developed than a 14-year-old one. The four-year-old girl does not even have a reproductive system in place yet. Is she less of a person because of it? Well, no, he said. Well, then why would you rule out such, why would you rule out the fetus from being human simply because its development doesn't match ours? He didn't have an answer for that one either. E, environment or location. I really like this one because it really, it really makes things clear. He said, you know, until it's born, it's not a human being. I, I said, why would you think that? He says, because birth makes it human. I said, how does where you are have any bearing on who you are? A few hours ago, you walked from the terminal at LAX onto this plane. You changed location. Did you stop being you? What about when you rolled over in bed last night? You changed location. Did you stop being you? Listen carefully. If not, how does a simple journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly transform a non-human tissue blob into a protectable human life we ought to value and respect? How does it do that? He didn't have an answer for that. Final category, D, degree of dependency. You know, until it's viable, it's not human, he says. I said, you know, if that's the definition of what makes us human, our ability to live independent of anyone or anything, then we've got a problem. Because there are people on this plane that are not human and we may kill them. How do I know that? Because there are people on this plane who depend on insulin, heart pacemakers, perhaps diabetes medication. Without them, they will not survive. Does that mean they are less human than us? He said, no, I don't like the way that sounds. I said, I don't either. You can see then that there's only four differences, size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, and none of them are morally relevant, are they? The guy who started this mess looked at the guy who was eavesdropping and said, we've got a problem. The guy who eavesdropped thanked me. He was genuinely grateful for my reply, and he says, I'm going to have to think about that. The guy sitting next to me kept talking, and what he said broke my heart. 
Here's what he said. You know, I've been listening to you write to lifers for about 25 years now. He said, that was a remarkable exchange. I said, how so? He said, I've been listening and I've had people give me little feet pins. I've had people give me rosary beads. I've had evangelicals tell me I'm going to burn in hell. But I've never had someone explain to me the reason why you people believe what you believe. He said, I'm going to have to think about this. Did you notice what Scott did? He took the very arguments that are espoused by the, the pro-choice movement and he just turned the tables on them. He didn't preach. He used mostly questions. Was it not a powerful exchange? Now, some of you might be a little uncomfortable because no scripture was used. Don't let that bother you. Go back and look at the woman caught in adultery and the coin with Caesar's inscription. Did Jesus quote scripture there? No, he didn't. He took their own arguments and turned it right back on them. There's nothing wrong with that. Two more things I, I, I want you to notice. You'll notice that what he said was not religious. and We're often accused of trying to push religious views on people. It's not technical science either. As I watched and listened to you, you understood everything he was saying because it is very understandable for most people. It simply takes the arguments of the world and exposes their catastrophic weaknesses, just like Jesus did. I can't help but make one more point. Um, I studied anatomy and physiology in college in the kinesiology department and the, uh, in the biology department, and uh, wish I had been a believer longer so I could really appreciate what I was studying. But at this I came to realize, you know, God made the body. He made the fetus. All that science talks about is something that God did, God made. It should not surprise us then that a Christian can take weak arguments of the world that are trying to twist God's things and turn it on its head. Science belongs to the Christian first, not the world. Feel free to use it. I want to give you one more short account. Um, this brother who had been at a Southern California college, speaking on the pro-life movement, was approached by a young female student afterwards who challenged him. Now, her thing is moral relativism. Moral relativism says morality is relative. It's up to me to decide what's right and wrong. It is the belief that there are no objective standards of right and wrong, only personal preferences. And here's the clincher. Therefore, we should tolerate other views as being equal to our own. Now, follow the conversation carefully. It's not too long. But if you listen carefully, you're going to see that the student doesn't realize what she's saying. The student comes up to him and says, you made some good points in your talk, but you shouldn't force your morality on me or anyone else who wants an abortion. It's our choice, isn't it? And he says, are you saying I'm wrong? She says, I'm not sure. What do you mean? He says, well, you think I'm wrong, don't you? If not, why are you correcting me? 
And if so, then why are you forcing your morality on me? Aren't you? She said, no, I just want to know why you're telling people what they can and cannot do with their lives. And he says, oh, are you saying I shouldn't do that? That it's wrong? If so, then why are you telling me what I can and cannot do? Why are you forcing your morality on me? The student confused at this point. Look, the simple fact is, is that the pro-choicers are not forcing women to have abortions, but you want to force women to be mothers. If you don't like abortion, don't have one. But you shouldn't force your beliefs on others. All I'm saying is that pro-life people should be tolerant of other views. So he says, is that your view? She says, yes. He says, why are you forcing it on me? That's not very tolerant, is it? What do you mean? I think women should have a choice and you don't. It's your view that's intolerant, wouldn't you say? So he says, okay, so you think I'm wrong. What is it you want pro-lifers like me to do? She says, you should let women decide for themselves and tolerate other views. So he says, watch this now. Tell me exactly what do pro-choicers believe? She says, we believe everyone should decide for themselves and tolerate other views. So he says, so you're demanding that pro-lifers become pro-choicers. She says, what? No way. He closes it now with her. He says, with all due respect, here's what I hear you saying. Unless I agree with you, you will not tolerate my view. Privately, you'll let me think whatever I want, but you don't want me to act as if my view is true. It seems you think tolerance is a virtue if and only if people agree with you. And that's exactly what they're doing. So he makes a note here. He says, her argument for tolerance was, in fact, a patronizing form of intolerance. She spoke of moral neutrality, but tried to force her own views on me. So I've just touched on this subject today. But I think you can see that it's not too difficult to have some intelligent and even respectable responses that at least get people to think. Don't you agree? And if you can imagine now, if we just look at the pro-choice, pro-life issue, if every believer in America could come to understand and respond to these things that are coming out that are not true, what difference do you think it would make in our country or even our world? Now remember now, I'm not preaching a pro-life message today. This is one of eight issues I've listed that we need to tackle. And I do think we need to tackle. When I think about the Apostle Paul, I don't think he would take these things lying down. I don't think the Lord would either. But I want you to remember what our real goal is here. Our real goal is this. We're tasked with a great commission. It is our job to reach people with the most crucial message they'll ever hear. And that's why we need to turn the fan of truth on and blow the smoke away so people can hear the truth and be set free. And with God's help, of course, these kinds of tactics 
can turn the world upside down, couldn't it? Or maybe in this case, it's right side up. Huh? So Lord willing, I'll, in the future, I can address the, other, the seven other smoke screens. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you this morning for being able to gather and get under the sound of your word and consider these things. More than anything, Lord, you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Lord, I know a lot of us, I know including myself, we've been out there on the front lines trying to talk to people and we've not had great success. And it's, it turns out that it's not as hard as it looks, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to be equipped, that we might be effective for you and see people saved and maybe even see this world turned around a little bit before the end. We know, Lord, that most people will not get saved but we know our country is in a state like it's never been before, and for that matter, the whole world. And so, Lord, let us go forth in your name, and let us bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.